Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the 17th Sunday after Trinity is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments about today's sermon, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website, faithlutheran-aflc.org. Now let's join in and hear what God has to say to us today. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the psalm appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Psalm 25 verses 1 through 10. can be found on page 863 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name Psalm 25 verses 1 through 10. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever tried to get somewhere without knowing the way? Now, we should probably pause and appreciate for a moment, just how foreign and alien of a concept that is to us in our day and age. Because we all have a little device, or most of us have a little device in our pocket and in our purse right now, which can help us get anywhere in the world simply by pulling up an app and accessing the internet. You can get directions to literally anywhere. A few years ago, I uh, used Google Maps, and I found out what it would take to get from my house to the very tip of South America. And it gave me a route. It was a long route, but I, I could get to Tierra del Fuego all the way down at the southern tip of South America simply by looking at my phone. Now, beyond the map feature of our phones, what's even more amazing, and, and again, most of our phones will have this function, they also have that little device on the front of the phone that lights up when we turn on the flashlight app. So even if it's not relevant to a map, our phones will still show us the way by revealing the, the perils and the pitfalls of the path before us. In my case, that most often works by avoiding piles of Legos. When I'm walking around and, and need to wake up a child or, or get from here to there in my own house. And so this concept of not knowing where we're going is now almost entirely foreign to how we live our lives. But there was a time in my life where I needed to know where I was going, 
and I did not know the way. And that was when I worked at Napa Auto Parts in St. Louis Park at their distribution center, and this was in the pre-cell phone era, and there was a power failure. Okay, so, so I'm going to try to set the scene for you here because it was treacherous. Uh, so uh, the, the Napa Auto Parts distribution center is as soulless of a building as you can possibly conjure up in your imagination. There are, in the warehouse, no windows. The only source of light is on the far west side of the warehouse where you have the loading doors for the trucks. And it just so happened that when I was uh, working during this power failure, I was on the opposite end of the building in the back corner of the warehouse and to this power failure, we all discovered that our maintenance manager had not been putting batteries in the emergency lights on the exit things. And so the power goes out in a building with no windows and it's pitch black darkness. Now, I'd worked there for a few years. I knew my way around the warehouse in the light. But the other thing you've got to set in your mind is that in the warehouse, there's nothing but rows and rows and rows of shelves that are all the same, and they all have auto parts on the shelves. And there's one main route that makes a donut around the warehouse. Otherwise, the shelves are going different directions based on the section and where they are in the warehouse, and it's impossible to find your way around. And so, starting in the back corner, in pitch black darkness, I felt my way, shelf by shelf, inching along, and every time the shelves would change, I'd have to pick up a part and guess what it was so I knew what section I was in and which direction I needed to go to get out of the building. And after 45 minutes, I finally found the front door where there was sunlight streaming in and all my coworkers sitting out in front on the picnic tables going, where were you? And they thought because of the power failure, I had just left and gone home. But I found my way out just groping in the darkness. Now, without knowing our way, it is almost impossible to get from here to there in certain situations in life. But when we're talking about eternity, when we're talking about our eternal destiny, it is, in fact, absolutely impossible to get from here to eternity without being shown the way. And so this is the topic that King David takes up in the first several verses of Psalm 25. The reality we'll discover is that without God teaching us his ways, we'll never reach eternity safely. We must trust in God or we will be put to shame. And so, turning our eyes back to Psalm 25 this morning, the first truth that we're taught by King David and by the Holy Spirit is that the way of God is the way of salvation. And so for our purposes this morning in the sermon, we're actually going to start in verse 4. And then we're going to work our way back to the beginning of the psalm at the end of the message. 
It's because here, in verse 4, is where David starts talking about the ways of God and the pathway of God. And he writes, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Now, maybe for us, as Christians, in church, on a typical Sunday morning, we should, it should be obvious to us that the way of God is the way of salvation. We hear this every week. We sing it in our songs. The scripture points it to us. The sermons point us to this reality. And so it should be obvious, especially to Christians. But it's not obvious to everyone. It's not obvious to the world around us. The world is always trying to find their way to salvation, and the world is always trying to find their way to salvation in a way that runs contrary to God's way, in a way that runs contrary to Scripture. Sometimes, for people in the world, the way to salvation is the way of pleasure. And, and several life philosophies try to get us there, whether it's hedonism, that unbridled pleasure gives us satisfaction in life, whether it's materialism, he who dies with the most toys wins, whether it's narcissism, as long as I feed what I want when I want it, then I'll be happy. Maybe pleasure for some in the world is the way to salvation. Maybe for others, the way is the way of, of wisdom or knowledge. We see this in philosophy. If, as long as I can think my way to a higher level of being, then I'll be all right. I can think my way into eternity. For some, it's what we might label as scientism. That science, the explanation that all we can see and feel and touch and look at is all that exists. And so as long as science can explain something, then we're fine, and if science doesn't explain something, it must not be real. You know, we find that scientism does really is lead us to a fatalism, a defeatism, that in the end, we die, and we don't even need to worry about eternity. There are so many isms and so many worldviews out there that we'd run out of time long before we even began to scratch the surface of different ways we and the world around us in our sin trying to get to the finish line, try to get to eternity. But the point here isn't so much that God's way and the way of his people, the way of Christianity is so much different than the way of the world. That's obvious. But the point is, here as David communicates it to us in Scripture, is that God's way is knowable. God's way is revealed. God's way is laid out there before us in the pages of Scripture. And what that means from God's perspective and from our perspective is that we're not left groping about in the darkness trying to find God's way. He's told us. He's shown us. That's what David's praying for, right? He prays to know the ways of God. He prays to be revealed the way of salvation. And God has answered David's prayer. In David's case, he answered somewhere around a thousand years later, but he still answered when Jesus shows up on the screen, when Jesus is nailed to a cross, and when Jesus emerges from an empty tomb. God has made known the way of salvation. And it's in Jesus Christ. 
It's in His blood. It's in His victory over sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus tells us that everything in God's Word points us to Him. You want to know what God needs you to do to be saved? One, He gives you His Word. And two, in His Word, He gives you Jesus. That's God's way. That's God's way of salvation. And so we continue on, and the second truth we learn is that the way of God is the way of forgiveness. David continues, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. When we begin to hear about what God wants us to do, and then we hear about God's forgiveness, our initial response is to think that God wants us to go out and live a life of forgiveness. Well, that's right. God wants you to go and forgive others. But as it turns out, living a life of forgiveness is really, really hard. So our next response to the reality of forgiveness is that we try to determine and limit who is deserving of our forgiveness. Peter expresses this by asking Jesus how many times he should forgive his neighbor, and then he proudly states that he is willing to forgive his neighbor up to seven times. To which Jesus responds, maybe start thinking about seven times 70. Our forgiveness is so much smaller than what God wants us to do. A lawyer expresses this limiting of forgiveness when he asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And we learn from the parable of the Good Samaritan that what, the real, what really the lawyer wants to know is who isn't my neighbor? Who can I exclude from my mercy? Who can I exclude from my love? In the end of the Good Samaritan, Jesus asked the lawyer, who was a neighbor? And the lawyer had to answer, the man who showed him mercy. Jesus himself addresses all of his followers when he gives the parable of the unforgiving servant, the man whom the king forgave thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars, so much money that the servant could never repay him. And as soon as the servant was released from his debt, he found someone who owed him a much smaller amount of money. He choked the man and threw him in prison so that he would pay him back. And the point of Scripture, over and over and over again, is that we cannot live a life of forgiveness that is consistent with how much God has forgiven us. And so the way of forgiveness that God lays out for us this morning is a way of forgiveness for us. Forgiveness of our sins. And we see that this is an eternal way. That forgiveness of sins has been God's plan all along. And all of God's interaction with humanity, and all through the Bible, God's plan has been Jesus. And it's also a comprehensive way. Sins extending all the way back to childhood, all the way back to our beginning, are sins that God has forgiven. These are sins that plague our conscience. They're sins that trouble us. 
They're sins that cause us to roll our eyes and cower in fear when we think about things that we've done in the past. These are the sins that God forgives us. And then what David says is that God's forgiveness flows from God's character. God forgives us because we know God to be a God of grace and mercy. So that when we cry out to God to have mercy on us, we expect God to forgive us because that's who God has shown himself to be. And since forgiveness flows from God's character, when we look at God, God shows us Jesus. He shows us what a character of forgiveness really looks like. It looks like our Savior nailed on a cross in our place for our forgiveness. And in this way, God wants His way to be a way of forgiveness. For this reason, God calls us to forgive others. You, as a Christian, if you find yourself unwilling or unable to forgive someone, it means you don't understand what God has done for you in Jesus. It means you don't fully appreciate the gospel. Because God's way is a way of forgiveness. Finally then, we see that God's way is the way of obedience. If the way of salvation is the most surprising to the path, to the, uh, the most surprising path to the world around us, and the way of forgiveness is the most surprising path to sinners like you and me, the way of obedience is the most surprising path to Christians. Why would this be the case? Because we, as Christians, so often misunderstand God's grace. There's two tensions in our lives as Christians that we live with and need to consider here. The first extreme end is that God is so gracious to forgive us, I can go on sinning without fear of consequence because God's forgiven all my sins. Do what you want. God forgives you. The other extreme that we want to be pulled to is since God's grace is so valuable... The price that Christ has paid is so high, I must work to pay him back with my good works, with my response, so that I don't cheapen God's grace. And so, I don't earn my salvation, but it becomes a system of me paying God back for salvation. Now, neither one of these extremes are true. They both pull us to and fro during the course of our Christian lives. So what is God teaching us here about obedience? Let's see what David writes. He writes, says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. God wants you to obey his word. God wants you to keep his commandments. God wants you to listen to him and do what's right. Because in the end, God wants others to see his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness through you. 
And that's the point of obedience. That's the point of good works in the Christian life. God commands you to listen to him, to obey him, to produce good works, not because you need it. He's taken everything, he's taken care of everything you need for life and salvation in Jesus Christ. Your good works don't count for your eternity. God doesn't want you to obey him to do good works because he needs them. He's God. He doesn't need anything. Full stop. We shouldn't have to explain it beyond that. So, why do we obey God's word? Why do we do good works? The answer for this is because your good works are for your neighbor. They are the way in which you love the neighbors God has put, you in, put in your life. And in loving your neighbors, your good works are designed to draw others to Jesus. They're designed to appeal to your neighbor of a different way. Of the way of God. And that's what's going to round us back to the first few verses here in Psalm 25. The way of God, the way that he's revealed to us about our salvation, the way that he's shown us is the way of forgiveness, and the way he works through your obedience to draw others to himself, all of this is for the purpose that no one would be put to shame. That no one at the end of time, on judgment day, would be found wanting and lacking, and in need of condemnation. God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires that no one would be condemned and punished for all eternity. And so God has published, He has declared, He has preached His gospel. And God has worked through your good works, through your obedience, so that the whole world might see that His way is different. And that the whole world might repent of their sins and come to Him in faith. So that the whole world might see that the enemy is defeated. The enemy would not triumph over us. When we think of our enemies... We think of the world around us that would persecute Christian. No, that's, that's not the enemy. We think of our sin. Yes, our sin is the enemy, but it's been forgiven. We think of death. Yes, that's the enemy, but death has been conquered. And so we look at the enemy David's describing here in Psalm 25, and the enemy is Satan. Satan, who is wantonly treacherous. Satan, who will use any deception, any half-truth, any falsity to draw others away from God. To deceive, and torture, and kill, and destroy. And so what God would do is He would declare His ways in all the world. That God would make His paths known. That you would see God as perfectly loving, as perfectly merciful, as not wanting to put you to shame. And that you would take that salvation, that forgiveness, that reality, and that you would walk out these doors this morning and you, without fear, 
and without shame would love your neighbor, that they too might see Jesus, that they too might believe and receive the forgiveness you have in Jesus. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.